take a moment to introduce our speaker. Uh, this morning we have all the way from Hawaii, um, Hawaii, Daniel Moore, his, his wife Amy is here with him. Daniel and Amy have been married for 13 years. They have four children. Daniel is a 2006 graduate of the Master's Seminary and 2008 graduate of the THM program. He's been um, working with students in, as a teaching capacity in public and private schools, and he's currently the um, principal and teacher of, what's the name of the school, Daniel? Hawaii Christian Academy. Mo most importantly, Daniel is currently our um, associate pastor candidate, and so to help you see his heart, to see his ability with the word, um, we thought it would be fitting to have him preach. And one of the tricks they taught me in seminary is when you candidate someone, you don't let them pick the text. Um, because, you know, most people who've gone through school have got one or two sermons they've crafted over and over. But Daniel was given his text by the search committee a little over a week and a half ago. So um, this is not his selected text, but the text selected for him. And so consequently, I think we'll be able to see his ability in a week and a half at the close of school to study God's word and hopefully to prepare a message that will edify and encourage us. So Daniel, please come on up and share with us what the Lord has for us. Well, good morning and thank you for having us here. It's a privilege to be here. And I know oh, 80% of you are thinking, what on earth is he doing in Iowa? Uh, why on earth would you be here if you're from Hawaii? <laughs> And I've given you a number of answers to that over the past week. Uh, the last half an hour is the best answer I could give you. Worshiping together with you and hearing your voices and seeing the love that you have for the Lord is worth every beach and every warm day that you could have in Hawaii. Uh, there's nothing greater than that. And I, I know Amy agrees with me. It's, uh, it's been a fun week, very busy. Uh, we got in on Wednesday, and we've had opportunity to spend time uh, getting to know some of you, getting to meet the youth, and we have just been so blessed by your hospitality, by your grace and welcoming us. The search committee, I want to say thank you to, not only for uh, planning so much, and being so considerate, considerate of us, but also of picking this text. It's been a, a real treat to look at it, and we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, I wanted to, to take just a minute to say thank you to all of you fathers, and happy Father's Day to you. Um, our, our society has done its best to make fathers a joke. And what you do in the role that you have as fathers is not a joke. You have a high calling from God. And thank you for what you have done in the lives of your children. And let me just encourage you, don't grow weary in exhorting and encouraging and appealing to your children to follow after God. Your, your responsibility is high. Thank you for what you do. I want to begin by reading our passage together, and I love to stand 
together as we read God's word. Mark chapter 12 is our text. I believe it's in the bulletin if you didn't bring your Bible. But let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, and as we hear from you, I pray that each one of our hearts would be drawn to you that we would be both convicted of sin and encouraged to walk in righteousness. We pray that as we look at your word this morning, that your spirit would speak to us, and that we would walk away this morning more like your son, Jesus Christ, pure and righteous in what we do and think and say. We pray for your blessing on this time. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. seems like every job, every responsibility that you have, whether it be a, a sport or a profession, always has a few absolute unbreakable rules. Doesn't matter what the job is, you'll always hear something along these lines. At the end of the day, just make sure this happens. Or just make sure this does not happen. We're Packers fans in, in our family, and we had to endure many years with Brett Favre, and I remember, I think it was his second to last season, we were in the conference finals going into the fourth quarter, and all I thought was, whatever you do, don't throw an interception. Brilliant game so far. Things are going great. But it's all going to be worthless in the fourth quarter if you throw an interception. And he did. <laughs> and so it was, it was easy to say goodbye to him a year later. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's one of those rules. No matter what you do, you don't do this. Because if you do, it undoes everything else. It makes everything else that you've tried to accomplish now meaningless. It's not a good game, even if you were perfect up until that point. And in the Christian life, there are commands that are similar to that. There are commands that are so great, they're so monumental, that if you miss them, it doesn't matter what else you do. It doesn't matter how many other things you get right. You can't get these wrong. So Mark chapter 12 is going to show us that. Christ will give us the answer. Before we jump into the passage that we just read, I want to give you a little bit of the context that it's in. Because we're jumping into Mark, it's important that we examine a little bit of the context so that we understand the setting that this is given in. Christ has come to the end of his ministry. He's entered Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. And he was received publicly. There were loud shouts of Hosanna, glory to God in the highest as he entered. And so the public, the, the common people knew who he was. In Mark chapter 11, you find that. And then... He goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. He is not happy with what is going on in the temple. And this was a very, very public thing. As a kid growing up, I always thought of the temple just like a church. And so I figured when he did this in the temple, it was kind of, well, whoever happened to be there that morning might have found out about it. But no big deal. It is one of the most public places in all of Israel, the temple. And what happens in the temple is quite public. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he walks into the temple that day. The next day, he comes back, and then he cleanses it. He drives out all the money changers. He overturns the tables. And that is a direct conflict with the leaders of Israel. It was not... Uh, uh, I can't accuse Christ of being uh, lacking tact, but it was not a very soft way of entering Jerusalem. He came in with guns blazing. Now, that prompts a response from the leaders. And the leaders come at him with a string of questions. They're attempting to undo him. They're attempting to confuse or to confound or to trick or to trip up Christ. They want him to leave. And so first, the elders, the priests, some of the Pharisees come to him. And their question is, where does your authority come from? Where does your authority come from? And his answer was remarkable because he did not answer the question. He said, first tell me where John the Baptist's authority came from. And the reason he did that was he knew they didn't care about the truth. They had already determined that they hated him. And rather than throw his pearls before swine, he said, you tell me this and I will answer you. And when they would not answer him, he said, then neither will I answer you. 
The answer was obvious. His authority was from heaven, not from man. But he would not tell them that because they were not seeking the truth. They had already concluded they would follow a lie. And then second, the Herodians and the Pharisees came together and they said, should we pay taxes? Should we pay taxes? That was not a small question for the Israelites. And Christ answered that question remarkably as well by asking for a coin. I think you are all familiar with the story. He said, give me one of the denarii, show me the coin. And he said, whose face is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, then give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him. They were amazed. They were stunned. In effect, Christ had defeated them. He defeated the elders. He defeated the priests. He defeated the Herodians. And then the Sadducees come up. And their question is, I'm summarizing, but their question is, is there really a resurrection? Is there a resurrection? And they phrased it by trying to trick him. And they told a story of a man who was married to a woman, and he died. And so his brother then married her next, and all seven. And they were trying to trap him. Ah, we know there's no resurrection because you can't explain this. And his answer was not gentle. His answer was bold. And it was quite confrontational. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And the reason you don't understand this is because of the hardness of your hearts. And that was his answer to the Sadducees. And at the end, again, everyone was speechless, amazed at this man. And that brings us to Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. This was the public scene going on, this conflict between Christ and the rulers. He walks into the temple and he undoes everything that they're doing. And they try to attack him and defeat him and prove that they know better. And group after group fails. And so what we have in Mark chapter 12 verses 28 to 34 is part of that narrative. And what, what Mark is showing us is that Christ is supreme. He is sovereign over all. He is superior to every leader, every authority in Israel. And this, in a sense, is the climax of his confrontation with the leaders. Now let me read again the introductory verses. Mark chapter 12, and look at verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked. That's the setting of the scribe. Matthew tells us, not only was he a scribe, but he was a Pharisee. And not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a lawyer. Now, this is, in a sense, he's not just a soldier. He's not just in the Navy. He's a Navy SEAL. 
He's not just strong. He's not just wise. He's not just influential. He's the best. He's the cream of the crop. A scribe, a Pharisee, a lawyer. This is the kind of guy that everyone would be quiet when he spoke. They would want to know what he has to say. And this man, unlike many of the scribes, was genuine. He was authentic. And the question that he came to Jesus with was not merely a test. There was an element in which it was a test. You do ask questions to test people. I've had to answer a lot of questions in the past few days. And even those that are asked in a kind and nice way, there's an element in which they're a test. Not a trap, not a trick, but a test. I want to know what this guy thinks about fill in the blank. And so the scribe comes to him to ask a question. But he had seen that Jesus answered all of his opponents well. He recognized it, and he was accepting of it. Now, the other groups, what did they do when they saw that Jesus' answer, that Jesus answered wisely? Their response was, let's kill him. That's what Mark tells us. He, he just made fools out of us. He told us the truth, and we've been telling everyone a lie. What are we going to do? Put him to death. And it was from that first confrontation on that they were actively seeking to kill him and to put him to death. So he was a scribe, a Pharisee, and a lawyer, and he was impressed with Jesus' answer. He was impressed with Jesus' answer. And he asked a legitimate question. Which commandment is greatest? And in typical messianic fashion, Christ quotes the Old Testament. His whole answer comes right out of the law. The first part, the greatest commandment, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. 5 is where the commandment is. And what is that commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And what Christ is saying is, this is the commandment that you can't miss. This is the one that if you get it wrong, nothing else matters. The entire Bible is summed up in this one line. Love God. Love God. Everything else literally flows out of that one commandment. Now that's both comforting and terrifying. I think it's somewhat comforting for us to know there's one command. Everything summed up in just one thing. That's comforting. It brings to us a, a, a sense of maybe this is actually doable. 
It's simple. I can remember that. <laughs> I, I can't remember every commandment in the Old Testament, but I can remember that. I can do it. But on the other hand, it's also terrifying because it's completely impossible for us to do on our own. If I paused right now and said, I want us all to spend 10 minutes or 10 seconds obeying this commandment. I know what would happen. I've tried it. We would, after about three seconds of trying to love God and focus on him, we would start to think about the donuts that are waiting after the service. <laughs> you might start to think about how cute your newborn baby is, or how handsome your husband is, how much you love your father. But within about three to five seconds, you would be thinking about something else. Now, if we can't make it 10 seconds loving God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, what does a day add up to? And what does a lifetime add up to? Now, all of a sudden, if this is the most important thing and I can't do it for 10 seconds straight, where does that leave me? What hope do I have? And yet, Christ tells us this commandment is the greatest of all. It makes every other command, in a sense, superfluous. You can be a devoted father, but if you miss this command, your devotion is ultimately worthless. You can be a committed Sunday school teacher, every week teach, week after week, but if you miss this, if you don't love God, it doesn't merit anything. You can go to a Christian college. You can be faithful to your wife. You can honor your father and your mother. You can submit to your elders. You can pay your taxes. You can read your Bible. You can say your prayers. Tithe your income. You can keep your house tidy. Work hard at your job. You can attend a Bible study, regularly tell your neighbor about Christ, drive the speed limit, learn to speak gently, learn to be patient, give your money to the poor, visit widows, visit orphans. But if you do not love God, you missed everything. You threw an interception in the fourth quarter. It's all worthless if it's not founded upon a love for God. That is why this commandment is so terrifying. If we miss it, we miss everything. It lays every good work aside. It tears every good deed away. And it leaves us with one fundamental question that determines everything. Do you love God? So it seems simple enough, but it is not easy. It is so beyond our capability that it leaves us with a sense of total inadequacy. How can I do it?
And if it's the most important thing of all, where does that leave me? Isn't it remarkable that this commandment doesn't actually tell us a deed to do? You, did you notice that? What is the greatest commandment? We normally think of commandments as do this. And there is a do this, love God. Well, how do I do that? You can't check that off the list, can you? You can clean your room, pay your bills. You can check those off the list. But there's never a point at which we say, yep, I'm done. I did that. Good to go. Love God with all my heart. Finished that one. It includes our affections. It includes our desires. It includes our attitude, our thoughts, our dispositions. We all know we can put on a good face for a few minutes or a few hours. You know when that person comes up to you and you really don't want to talk to them. You can kind of grin and bear it. Oh, nice to see you. And you just can't wait to leave. But you can do it. And this commandment lays all of that aside. Because you cannot fake it. You cannot act it. It either is or it isn't. It addresses our hearts and not just our deeds. So it's simple, but it's impossible. Now you should be asking at this point, how does what you're telling me connect to the gospel? If the commandment's so important and yet it's impossible, how does that fit in with the gospel? How does it fit in with Christianity? Before I answer that, I, I want to go, go about it in a roundabout way. Christ said on another occasion in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. So he says, if you're, if you're tired... If you're laboring, working hard, and you're tired, come to me and I'll give you rest. Isn't that what we all want? I think if we were honest, all of us would say this morning, there's a sense in which we're tired, we're weary, we labor. And Christ invites us, come and take my yoke upon you. Wait, hold on a second. Take my yoke? What do you do with a yoke? Anyone have a yoke in their living room? You don't lounge with a yoke. What do you do with a yoke? You work with it. It's an instrument of work. And he says, come and take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But when we heard the greatest commandment that sums it all up, was it easy? Was it light? I don't, I don't think so. Something doesn't fit. Do you feel the tension? Come and have an easy burden, and yet the burden of the greatest commandment is far more than we can bear. 
Now, I'm, I'm going to relieve that tension, but I want to increase it first. <laughs> What's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? Anyone? You shall have no other gods before me. That's not hard to connect the great commandment and the first commandment. What does it look like if we're not loving God with all of our hearts? If we love God with half of our hearts and we love something else with the other half of our hearts, what are we doing? Aren't we putting another God before him? And if we are failing to love God with our whole hearts, then we have committed idolatry. We've put something where God belongs. So every moment of our lives that we fail to love God wholly, we're struggling against idolatry. That's why John ends 1 John by saying, little children, guard yourselves from idols. He's not talking about little figurines. He's talking about our hearts. I don't know about you, but when I look at this commandment, it leaves me broken. It leaves me feeling low. That there's nothing I can do in myself to please God. Even if we could pull off a 10-second miracle and worship God and love God with our whole hearts for 10 seconds, is there anyone who thinks they can do that all day long or the rest of their lives? Now, what does Christ then mean when he says, my burden is light? It seems so heavy, it's going to crush me. How can he say it's light? Well, I think if you feel that weight right now, you're in a very good spot because it opens you to the beauty of the gospel. If you feel the weight of your sin, and you recognize your need for forgiveness, and you see that you do not live up to God's expectation, that's when the gospel becomes glorious. That God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a flawless and perfect life who for not one second ever failed to love God with all of his heart and he sent his son to the cross to die so that if you would trust in Christ how far short you fall would be laid upon him that he might die on your behalf and there's nothing you can do to earn it. All it takes is faith. That you would believe in him. And if you realize how far short you fall of his commandment, then you realize how much you need that. So go back to Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary. Take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest. How do you explain this? If it's a yoke and you're doing work, how is it easy? Here's how I've, I think is, it's easy to understand if I put it in this way. 
If I called my little girl, Elizabeth, she's three years old, if I called her out to the car and I said, Lizzie, come help me bring the groceries in from the car. I said, I want you to get that box. Bring it into the kitchen for mommy, okay? And I know all along this box is way too heavy for her. You, you might think that the gospel is something like this. God picks up the box, I pick up the box, and then I say, here, Lizzie, help me, and she kind of puts a hand on the box, and we walk in together. And you say, how did you lift that box, Lizzie? And what's her answer? I didn't. My dad did. I don't think that works. I don't think it works. What if I was able, though, to supernaturally give her my strength? So that now all of a sudden she was as strong as I was. I imparted it to her and she had my strength. And I say, Lizzie, will you please take the box into the kitchen? What does she say? Okay. And she goes over and she lifts it up. She walks into the kitchen and you pause. How did you lift that? Well, how did she lift it? With whose strength? How were you able to do that? Well, I have my daddy's strength. I can lift it now. You say, Lizzie, is that a, a heavy box? Is that a heavy burden? And what's her answer? No, it's light because of how strong my daddy made me. That is a picture of the gospel. Not just that our sins are forgiven, but that he gives us a new heart and the power of his spirit so that when he says, love God with all of your hearts, all of a sudden, we have the power to do it. And even as we sang those songs, I, I couldn't stop thinking, this is not just about the music. This is about our hearts. And a, and a person who doesn't love the Lord, doesn't know the Lord, does not delight in worshiping his name. What's the difference? God has given to us his spirit, which gives us the power to obey and to follow his command. So he gives us this greatest commandment to love the Lord with all your heart. And on our own, it's so massive we can't carry it. How then are we able to fulfill it? By his strength, which he gives to us. Let me pause here and I want to ask you personally, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Have you been trying to obey God on your own strength? Do you think that if you were to stand before God tonight, you would be able to enter heaven? And if you could not say in your heart right now, I know I would, if you know that you're trying to do it on your own, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Do not trust in your own strength, but put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ so that when you go home today, it's not a big question mark, but you know where you stand with him. If you haven't done that, I challenge you to do it now. Do it today. This command is both beautiful and terrifying. And if you feel the weight 
of its, how far short we fall of it, then I know that you will turn to the Lord because we cannot do it in our own strength. Now let's wrap up quickly by going through the last, the second commandment. And I think it will be fairly simple. Jesus adds on to the first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here he quotes Leviticus chapter 19. We don't have time to go through all of it. But if you go back and read Leviticus chapter 19, you're going to find one of the most practical chapters in the entire Bible. Surprising if you haven't looked at Leviticus but it is incredibly practical. Now he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That strike anyone as odd. The scribe didn't ask what the top two commandments were. What did the scribe ask? What's the greatest? So why does Jesus add on the second? Why does he add on this second one? And I think the answer is pretty straightforward. It's impossible to obey the first one if you do not obey the second one. It's easy for us to say, oh yeah, I love God, he's great, he's my pal, I pray to him every day, and I hate my neighbor. Or maybe you're not so blunt, it's just that you don't wanna to talk to your neighbor, and you gossip about your neighbor, and you wanna take vengeance on your neighbor, and you hate your neighbor in your heart, and Leviticus 19 deals with every one of those. John says it this way in 1 John 4.21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's the commandment that we have from him. Why do we love our brother? Why do we obey that commandment? Because we love God and the person next to us. We haven't seen God, but we've seen them. And so our heart's desire then is to love them. So husbands, when you get home work from late, uh, you get home from work late, think about this. You've had an exhausting day and you just want to plop down on the couch and watch a little sports center. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when your wife sits down next to you and wants to chat, starts to tell you about her day, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that loving your neighbor will include listening to her. It doesn't. It may be the last thing in the world that you want to do when you're tired, but if the Lord's given you a new heart, then he'll give you the power that you need to push the mute button and to listen. That's just one, thousands of applications of the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at what the scribe's response is. You are right, teacher. You are right. He affirms it. He says, you are right. And then he rephrases it in his own words, which is a wonderful thing as a teacher to hear. It's easy to parrot and to repeat the exact same thing back. He rephrases it. And he adds on to it at the end, these things are greater than all whole burnt offerings or sacrifices. 
So he answered him wisely. He answered him wisely. And Jesus then says, he saw that the scribe answered wisely and he said, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven or from the kingdom of God. Why does he say that? Wouldn't you expect him to say, you've entered the kingdom, you got it. And the answer to that question is, Jesus knew that although he understood the commandment, he hadn't yet obeyed it. So unlike the other scribes who had walls up, who were actively lying, this scribe had none of those hindrances, but he still had to act upon it. He still had to submit to the sovereignty of Christ. You're almost there, is Jesus' admonition. You're almost there. And look at the last line as we conclude. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. If this elite scribe who was a scribe and a Pharisee and a lawyer has this wonderful conversation with Christ and the end of it is, you're not far from the kingdom of God, who now is going to dare to ask him another question? If even this scribe could not enter it, had not yet entered it, where does that leave everyone else? The scribe had witnessed Christ's supremacy over the Sadducees, the elders and the priests, the Herodians and the Pharisees. He saw the wisdom of Christ's answer. And he's silenced. He's silenced. What a marvelous Lord Jesus is. There is no one who can compare to him. And as we behold his glory, his wisdom, his power. I pray that he gives us fresh strength to love him with all of our hearts and all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we cannot on our own do this at all. And we recognize that even as believers who have put our faith in you, we so often fall short of this. I pray that we might behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And as we see him, and as we see his glory, that we would be transformed so that our hearts begin to love and adore him. And I pray that we would grow closer and closer to loving him with all of our hearts and everything that is in us. I pray in his name, amen.